Well, once again, if you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapters 14 and 15. We're going to pick it up where we left off. We ended with verse 14, and we're going to begin in verse 15 of chapter 14. So grab your Bibles and let's get started. We're, we're still in the upper room. This is Thursday. Now, as I said last week, we're going to be in Thursday for a long time. John has kind of elongated this, this time period, and he's spending five chapters talking about one day. So we're still in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus has just dropped some significant bad news on these guys. Now, once again, always try to get into the picture. Put yourself in their sandals. Um, get in that room and, and just imagine all this news that they're hearing from Jesus. Here's, here's a few of the things he's dropped on them. First of all, he told them, one of you is going to betray me. Not a single one of them knew what he was talking about. They didn't suspect Judas. They didn't suspect one another necessarily. As a matter of fact, they wanted to know, is it me? Uh, and so this is some pretty incredible news for them to hear from Jesus. Secondly, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, he's vacating the premises and telling them that you can't go with me anymore. After three and a half years with this man, they can no longer travel with him. They can no longer go along with him. And he says, you can't follow me either. You not only can't come, you can't follow me. You can't come after me. And so all of this news is just weighing on top of them, one piece of information after another. And then he, he, he breaks the news to poor Peter that before the roaster, rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And as I said last week, for that guy, Peter, who is a type A driven personality, real strong ego, that was a blow. Uh, he gets exposed in front of all of his peers, and it was devastating news for him. And then Jesus says to all of them, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, which is really a, kind of a slap in the face saying that you really don't know who I am. And by virtue of that, you don't know who my father is. And the truth is, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Yes, they believed him to be the Messiah. They hoped he was the Messiah. The problem was their definition, their understanding of the Messiah didn't match his. So he just keeps dropping bombshell after bombshell on top of these guys. But at the same time, he gives them some pretty incredible news. So what does he tell them? He tells them that I'm going to be glorified. I'm the Son of Man, the Son of God the God-man, and I'm going to be glorified. Now, they didn't understand what that meant, and they most certainly didn't understand that it would have anything to do with what's going to take place in the hours ahead, his arrest, his trials, his beatings, his crucifixion, and ultimately his death. And even though he tells them, you can't follow me now, he says, you will follow me afterward. There's going to be a time when they are rejoined. There'll be a period of separation, but there'll also be a period of reunion when they do get to be again with Jesus. And then he tells them the most significant part of the good news is, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back for you. See, Jesus was leaving, but he, he was leaving with a purpose in mind, with a destination in mind. And he was letting them know that don't worry, don't, don't be troubled in spirit. I, I have a plan and I'm coming back for you someday. And then he breaks the news that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You remember they struggled over, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And he says, I am the way. I've been with you all along, and I'm going to reveal to you, show to you the way to a preferred future. 
And that's really what this whole series is about, these, these series of discussions that Jesus is having with his disciples in that upper room. And he just reminds them one last time, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than he, these he will do. These men it wanted to emulate Jesus. They, they wanted to be like Jesus. They, they loved the idea that when they went out and were sent to go cast out demons and heal the sick, they were able to do so because that's what they had seen Jesus do. And so when he tells them, you're going to do greater works than I do, that, that had to bring up in them some at least excitement that maybe things are going to get better. But overshadowing all of this is the idea that the, the disciples didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand the circumstances. And so, so much of what he's telling them, and it's going to continue into next week as we move into chapters 16 and 17. So much of what he's telling them is going right over their heads and it's missing their hearts because their, their eyes are focused on the wrong thing. Their, their hopes are focused on the wrong thing. They have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So he's going to continue discussing with them. And in verse 12, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do. So there's that promise that if you just believe in me, if you continue to believe, you're going to do greater things than even I do, greater in extent, greater in quantity. But something was going to have to happen for that promise to become true. And it's tied to this. I'm going to the Father. See, what the disciples were missing was part of Jesus' destiny was to the crown to become the king. But before he could become the king, he had to go to the cross. Before he could wear a crown of gold, he had to wear a crown of thorns. And that's the part they didn't understand. And even when he told them, they, they didn't want to accept it. See, Jesus was going to have to go to the Father. But here's the important part of that equation. For him to return to the Father, to go back to where he came from, to go back to his Father's side, he was going to have to go through a betrayal. Judas was going to have to betray him. He was going to have to end up being arrested. He was going to have to be put on trial. He would be humiliated, beaten, spit upon, slapped in the face, ridiculed, mocked. He would suffer greatly, both physically and emotionally, in the days ahead. And he would end up being crucified, nailed to a Roman cross, one of the most excruciating deaths you could imagine. And then he would die on that cross. But he would also resurrect. Three days after dying, he would be resurrected and brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the will of God the Father. So all of these things had to happen before he could return to the Father. But he would return. And if he went to the Father, something incredible was going to happen. And, and really what we're looking at in these chapters is Jesus is letting them know that there's an incredible event that's going to take place. If I am faithful, God will be faithful. And you will have what you need to be faithful as my followers. He tells him in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask. Now, we, we read this passage and, and we get kind of greedy. And I've heard so many people take this passage way out of its context and try to apply it to their lives and use it as kind of a carte blanche. It's, it's your 
blank check from God to whatever you want you can have. Name it, claim it. That's not what this verse is saying. He's, he's keeping it in its context. He's telling them, I'm leaving, I'm going away, I'm coming back, but you're going to get a power that you've never had before. You're going to do greater things than I've done. And so he's telling them that you're going to ask in my name and it will be accomplished. He's, he's, he goes on and says, if you ask anything, anything in my name, I'll do it. And again, we can get greedy with this and think, wow, this is, this is cool. Whatever I want, I can have. If, if I see a sports car I want, I can have it because Jesus promised it. No, that's not what he's saying. And I love this quote from Rodney Whitaker. He says, praying in Jesus' name does not refer to some magical formula added to the end of a prayer. It means to pray in keeping with his character and concerns and indeed in union with him. Now think about that for just a minute. If you're going to pray in Jesus' name, it just, it's not how you end your prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's praying in keeping with his character, his holiness, his righteousness, his unity with God, his love, everything about Jesus, praying in his character and in keeping with his concerns, his concern to honor the Father, his concern to bring righteousness to the earth. See, when, when you pray in his name, you're praying in keeping with who he is and you're praying as he would pray. So it's not to satisfy your own desires. It's not to get your greatest wish fulfilled. He's not your cosmic genie. He's the Son of God. And when you pray in His name, you're praying according to His character as He would pray. So what's really going on here is this, this picture that Jesus is painting of union with Him. You're going to think like me, he's telling them. You're going to pray like me. You're going to pray in my name, in my character, just as I would pray. And this is incredibly significant. See, Jesus has told them he's leaving, and he's told them you can't go where I'm going. Remember, bad news for them. And yet, the question is then, how will they remain united with him if they can't be with him? For three and a half years, they have walked in lockstep with Jesus. Everywhere he goes, they go. Everything he's done, they've done. Everything he's eaten, they've eaten. Where he slept, they slept. And now they can't go with him. So how do they maintain unity with him? That's what this is all about. How in the world are they going to do greater works if he's nowhere to be found? See, he's the source of everything for them. He's fed them. He's led them. He's taught them. He's reprimanded them. He's shown miracles to them. And yet now he's saying, where I go, you can't come. So what's the key? That's, that's what this is all about. So in verse 15, he tells them, if you love me, you will keep my, my commandments. Now, again, this is one of those verses we, we lift out of its context and we, we kind of twist it. And we turn it into this, if I do this, God will do this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And it puts all the onus on him that we have to do this act of love. And tied to that is keeping his commandments. And while there's an aspect of truth to that, we're, we're really missing what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples. Remember, he's talking to men who are living according to the flesh because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And everything they do, they do really out of their own strength except when he empowered them to go heal and cast out demons. 
every other day of their lives, they're still functioning as fallen human men. And so he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now, when you read this, be careful not to put the cart before the horse. In other words, it, it's all relegated to their obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we're going to get into that. What he means by commandments a little bit later on. But, but don't think that he's telling them that it all hinges on you loving me and keeping my commandments. And if you don't, all bets are off. That's not what he's saying. He's really pointing to the future. He's pointing to a day when they will love him and they will keep his commandments because they will have an ability that they don't currently have. And at that time, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. See, Jesus is thinking future because he knows he's going to fulfill his Father's will and go to the cross. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend on high and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. So he's already thinking future, way ahead of the disciples. So when he says, if you keep my commandments or you will keep my commandments, which one's he talking about? Which commandments? You know, there are roughly 49 to 60, depending on who you look at. There's, there's 49 to 60 different commandments of Jesus in the New Testament. So what, what, which ones are we talking about? Which ones do we have to keep? Is it the command to believe? He's used that multiple times just in chapter 14 alone. Believe in God, believe also in me, he told them. He told them in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Is, is it belief that is the command that we're supposed to keep? Or is he referring to every single command he's ever given them? Now just think about that. I don't think these guys could remember what they had for breakfast. And how in the world are they going to remember everything Jesus had ever said? They didn't even understand half of what he said. So really we have to wrestle with what, what commandments is he talking about? But here's what he's saying. He's saying, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Again, he's thinking into the future. He's fast forwarding to something that is going to happen as a result of what he's about to do. This helper. He says, I'm going to give you another helper. It's it's. Another of the same kind. In other words, they're going to have just as much help when Jesus leaves as when he's there. But it's going to come in a different form. It's going to come in the form of this helper, this advocate. The, the Greek word is parakletos, and it's, it's comforter, advocate. It literally means one who comes alongside. He, he's going to come alongside the disciples after Jesus has left, and he's going to become their constant companion. See, what's going to happen is they're going to be born from above, just like Jesus told Nicodemus. And they're, go they're going to receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is beginning to reveal to these men in these chapters, is that something significant is about to happen to them. And it's something they don't understand and they don't fully even expect to happen. This was not part of their paradigm. It's not what they thought was going to be included with the coming of the Messiah. See, Jesus told Nicodemus, the Pharisee who visited him, visited him at night, he said, humans can produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. See, the disciples were going to need something more than what they currently had in order to face what was coming. And it would come as a result of Jesus doing what he came to do. 
So Jesus says, you're going to receive this helper, the advocate, the comforter, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. In other words, the spirit's not going to be for everybody. It's going to be exclusively for those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have been born from above. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world can't see the Holy Spirit. The world can't understand the Holy Spirit because they are of this world and not of that world. They're natural and not spiritual. They're fallen. But he says, you know him. And I think they must have looked around and go, know who? What do you mean we know him? But he says, you guys know him because he's been with you all along. He's been guiding Jesus. Ever since Jesus was baptized, he, he has been led by the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus has done has been under the direction and power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, he's been here. You know him. He dwells with you. But what's the difference? Now he's going to dwell in you. See, there's going to be a radical transformation take place. And that's what they need to understand. And that's what he's trying to press into their minds is that I've got to do what I've come to do. He will come and be in you. Right now he's with you because I'm with you. The power of the Spirit is with you because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is with you. But when I leave, he's going to indwell you. He's going to become part of you. And Jesus tells them, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm, I'm not going to leave you defenseless and, and hopeless and helpless. He says, I'm, I'm going to come to you. I'm actually going to come to you yet a little while, he says, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. What's he talking about? What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to come again? You, you will see me again. And there's a lot of speculation and none of us know exactly what Jesus means by this, but Jesus is promising to come to them. What would come into their minds? Him physically coming to them. Now you may say, well, yes, that's exactly what will happen. We, we know the rest of the story. We've seen the movie. We, we know that Jesus comes to them. But is this the, what he's talking about in these verses? See, is he talking about his appearances to them after his resurrection? We know he appeared to them. We know he appeared to over 500 people over a 40-day period of time. But is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about the future rapture of the church when he returns for his bride? Or is he talking about his second coming? So he says, I'm coming. But which one is he talking about? Or is it none of those? I tend to think it's none of the above. Here's what I think because of the context. He's talking about him coming in the form of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he, the Father, and the Spirit are all part of the Godhead. So when the Spirit arrives, it's as if God and the Son have arrived as well. He's coming to them in the form of the Spirit. That's really what he's talking about here because this is the key, the key to everything. It's the key to life. See, the Holy Spirit is who raised Jesus from the dead. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember what Jesus told the disciples? He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, Jesus came to sacrifice his life. But in John 6, 63, he says, it's the spirit who gives life. Jesus would lay down his, down his life. The Holy Spirit would give him back his life. And guess what? The Holy Spirit would also give them new life, new life in Christ, a new nature, a new future, a new identity. 
And why was that important? Why is that necessary? Because the flesh is no help at all. The flesh can't help us. We can't gain a right standing with God. We can't do anything to earn His favor. It's only the Holy Spirit who gives life. And once again, think about Jesus talking to that Pharisee, Nicodemus, in the dark of night as He's come to him in secret. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, unless you have the Spirit giving you life, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Being born into the, the Hebrew family means nothing. Being born a descendant of Abraham means nothing. You still got to be born again. See, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to reveal myself to you through the Spirit of God. I'm leaving but I'm going to come back in a different form, in the form of the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to help you carry on my work. You will have all the power you need, but it's coming in a different form. And rather than walking with you in the form of Jesus Christ, it's going to dwell within you in the form of the Holy Spirit, allowing them to accomplish great things. Look at verses 13 through 15 of John 16. It says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, but will tell you what He has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring my, me glory by telling you whatever He receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever He receives from me. You see that union going on between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit indwelling them is going to create in them a unity with the Godhead that they've never had before. And here's what you need to recognize, that if you're in Christ, you have that same unity with the Godhead. And they will hear from Jesus just like they did before. They will understand things Jesus said in the past like they've never understood before, all because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them in verse 20, in that day, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. It will round out the relationship. It will complete the circle. Jesus spent a lot of time earlier talking about the Father's in me and I am in the Father, but now he's telling them, we're going to all be in this together. You're going to be part of this unity. And that's, again, projecting into the future what's going to happen to these men after the Holy Spirit comes. That's why I can say, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. They're going to have the capacity to keep the commands of Christ. They're going to have the capacity to keep the commands of God given in the Mosaic law because they will have a power that they've never had before. See, this unity is significant and it's only possible if Jesus goes and does the will of the Father, returns to His Father, and sends the Holy Spirit. And He tells them, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. Once again, in the form of the Holy Spirit. And then one of the disciples who had the unfortunate bad luck of having the same name as Judas, he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? Again, these guys don't get it. He's going to manifest Himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. Again, they don't understand that. They don't have that in their toolbox to understand. But that's what Jesus is talking about. I will manifest Myself. <clears throat> How's He going to do that? Once again, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
They will understand things they didn't understand before. They will know that Christ is with them. They will sense His presence. And it says in Romans 8.10, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is life because of righteousness. You know, when, when we accept Christ, He indwells us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And He's with us. Everywhere we go, in everything we do, He's with us. And that's what He's telling the disciples. He knows that in the hours ahead, things are going to get very dark and depressing for them. But He's letting them know it's going to get better. There's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And this poor disciple Judas just says, Lord, we... How are, you, how are you going to manifest yourself? And he's missing it. He doesn't get that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Judas, you're going to have an ability to do things you've never done before. You're going to be able to love like you've never loved before. And my father will love you in return. And we're going to make our home with you. We're going to dwell within you. Think about that. God the Father, God the Son, in the form of the Holy Spirit of God, all three dwell within you and I. That's an amazing thing to consider. I can't fully fathom it. I can't fully explain it. But I know because Jesus promised it that it's true. And so I have this unified relationship with the Holy Trinity, which is amazing to think about. They make our, their home with us. We are, in these bodies, home to the Holy Trinity. And we know this from other passages of Scripture. Colossians 1.27, Paul writes, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. How? In the form of the Holy Spirit. John will later write in his first letter, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have the Godhead living within us. Now think about the significance of that, the importance of that, the, the power Inherent in that, that's the relationship we all have. All because of the helper that Jesus Christ is going to send. See, Jesus knows these men don't have, they don't have what it takes. He's been with them for three and a half years. He knows everything about their personalities. He knows Thomas is a doubter. He knows Peter shoots his mouth off. He knows everything about every one of these men and yet he's going to give them what they need. See, they're fearful, they're scared, they're confused, they're a little bit depressed. They're having second thoughts about who he is and why did we sign up for this thing in the first place? Because all they can do is operate in the flesh because they don't have the spirit. They're naturally going to think like men of the flesh because they don't have the indwelling presence of the spirit. And Jesus is giving them the benefit of the doubt. He's telling them it will not always be this way. So he says, don't, guys, don't be troubled. Don't be upset. Don't be afraid. And I know they're thinking, they're going, what, what are you talking about? Everything you've just told me causes me to doubt and to have fear and to be troubled. And yet, don't be afraid. But once again, Jesus is, he knows what's coming and they don't. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. But see, they don't fully love him yet. They don't fully have the capacity to love Him yet because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He says, I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you will believe. See, guys, I'm telling you this. You don't get it now. 
you, you just can't stop worrying and fretting and, and doubting. But guess what? The day's coming when you will and you will believe. After he goes to the cross, after he dies and after he resurrects and they begin to see him in the flesh, the literal flesh, they will believe. And then when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will be radically changed from the inside out. See, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He begins to talk about the ruler of this world, that Satan is going to look like he's having a field day. When he gets nailed to the cross, it's going to look like Satan has won the day. But no, he has no claim on me, Jesus says. He has no power over me any more than Pilate will have power over me or any more than Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin have power over me. I do as the Father has commanded me. I'm going to do what I came to do. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. He's prefacing. He's, he's setting up, foreshadowing all that's about to come. And then he says, let's go. Rise. Let's go up. Let's go from here. Now, this could lead us to believe that they left the upper room, that they vacated the premises. But if we continue on in these verses, we're going to find out that they didn't really go anywhere. So what's he talking about? Where did they go? They just finished having the, the meal. They, they just finished having their feet washed by Jesus. Where are they going? Well, what we know is chapters 15 through 17 are all part of the upper room discourse. It all takes place in the same room on that Thursday evening. And so what likely happened is that when Jesus says, rise, let's go, he meant let's get up from the dinner table. Let's, let's move to another section of the room. When we have company over and we have dinner, we oftentimes move to the den and we, we relax in there and talk. That's exactly, I think, what's going on here. They didn't leave. The Passover meal was over, but Jesus is far from done telling these guys what they need to hear. So that's where chapter 15 picks up and he begins to tell them some things that are incredibly significant on top of everything else he said. And he begins with this, this analogy. He says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. He begins to tell them a, a, what appears to be almost a parable, but it's really not. It's, it's the last of his seven I am statements. And we've covered many of them already. But it, it's really not a parable. It, it's an extended metaphor. It's, he's telling them a story in order to teach them a truth. And, and he uses something that's right out of their world. Uh, they live in an agrarian culture, and so he uses the idea of a vine dresser and the vine and the branches and fruit. And it's going to explain how everything is about to change in their lives. This union with him, what is it going to look like? Once again, they don't fully grasp it. They don't fully understand it. But he's painting them a picture of life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you need to understand this passage. So he says, my father, God, is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice the reference and the repetitive nature of the word fruit over and over again. So what, what's his point? What's he trying to do? He's focusing on fruit bearing. These guys understand fruit bearing, but they don't necessarily understand it within the context Jesus is using it. See, the goal of God, the vine dresser, is ultimately fruit. He wants fruit. And the branches exist to bear fruit. 
That's why they're there. They have no other purpose in life other than to bear fruit. So that's the picture he's painting for them. So he tells them, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So he, he gives them this statement and it comes across to you and I like a command and that's the way we read it. And what we do with it is we turn abiding into a work. Well, I gotta, I gotta abide. I, I, I'm not abiding enough. I'm not trusting enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not reliant enough. And, and it, we put all the onus on us, but you gotta keep the metaphor if you're going to understand the meaning. See, he's talking about branches. A branch can't bear fruit by itself. That's, that's like totally understandable, right? If you break a branch off and you lay it over in the yard, it's never going to produce fruit because it doesn't have what it needs for that to happen. And the same thing is true of you and I, that if we are separated from or we are apart from God and our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, we will never bear fruit. Abiding is not about working. It's not about effort. It's, a, it's about remaining. That's really what the word means. It conveys unity, staying one, staying attached, community, that compensation between the, the vine and the branch. It's about total dependency and the humility of just allowing the vine to do through you what you can't do on your own. It's about teachability, which is something most men struggle with, and about conformity, conforming to the will of the vine dresser. See, that's what Jesus is trying to teach these men, and by extension, you and I. And he tells them, just as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, guess what? Neither can you. You will not produce fruit if you don't remain attached, if you don't remain in the vine. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Let's keep that straight. You're not Jesus, you're not the Messiah, and you never will be. But as long as you maintain that relationship with me, you will be fruitful. And if you don't maintain that relationship, you will not be. In no way is Jesus teaching that you and I can lose our salvation. Don't put that burden on this passage. That's not what Jesus is saying. And when he talks about branches that are burned up, he's really talking about those that were never fruitful to begin with. They never did have a proper relationship. They never were truly dependent. Someone like Judas Iscariot, for instance. So this is not talking about the risk of losing your salvation if you don't hang on to Jesus. It's, it's him teaching the disciples that incredible things are going to happen to you because of your relationship with me. Because I'm the vine, you're the branches. And if you abide in me and I in him, you're going to bear much fruit. But apart from me, guys, you can't do anything. Don't go out on your own. Don't try to do this thing on your own. This is not for beginners. This is not something you can pull off in your own strength. You have to have that relationship, and it's going to come in the form of the Holy Spirit. So what's he doing? He's letting them know, and he's preparing them for what's to come. You're going to have the power of the Spirit to let you do things that you've never done before. You're going to do greater works because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. Their fruitfulness, their future fruitfulness is going to be directly tied to his faithfulness. In other words, if Jesus Christ doesn't go to the cross, all bets are off. None of this happens. They'll never get the Holy Spirit. They'll never have the power to do what he's calling them to do. They'll never produce fruit. See, he's going to be faithful. And as a result, 
they will end up being fruitful because of the Holy Spirit. And he says, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. See, what the vine dresser wants is fruit. And the way the vine dresser gets accolades is by the fruitfulness of his vineyard. And Jesus says, boy, you guys are going to give glory to God because you're going to be his bearers of fruit in the days to come. Just as I've been a bearer of fruit, just as I've glorified him, you're going to glorify him and you will prove to be my disciples. And, and again, think about them. What do, you, what do you mean? Everybody knows we're your disciples. But he's saying, no, they will truly know you're, you're my disciples because you're going to do greater works than even I've done. You're going to do things that nobody would ever dream of. And it will be living proof that you're my disciples and that my spirit lives within you. I love how he's directing them and how he's trying to encourage them and prepare them for what's to come. And he knows they don't fully get it, but they will. And it's like Jesus is setting them up for this incredible moment, that aha moment that will come when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they're able to link, look back and link together all the things that he said and go, that's what he meant. That's incredible. And he tells them, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Just Trust me, lean on me, rest in me, and you will bear much fruit. It's going to happen, guys. But what, what fruit is he talking about? See, we read this passage and we, oh, oh fruit, okay, fruit. And, and we have all kinds of conceptions about what he means, but we have to really wrestle in, in, with the passage and say, okay, what, what's he talking about? Is he talking about converts? That's what most of us have been trained to believe. Well, we got to get more converts. we got to bring more people to Christ. Yeah, that's great. But is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about more biblical knowledge? Oh, i got to memorize more scripture. i got to study more Bible. i got, I got to become a student of the scriptures. Yes, you need to be, and you should be. But is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about spiritual gifts? I, I don't know my spiritual gift. I need to find out what it is so I can use it for God's glory. Yes, you should, but... Again, is that what he's talking about? Is it faithfulness? Is, is he talking about generosity? If I gave my stuff away, then I would be doing the things that God wants and producing fruit. Or is it, man, if I just had the ability to teach or preach or you know, talk to people about the gospel. See, I don't think he's talking about any of these things, even though all of these things are necessary and good. And here's the reason I don't think that's what he's talking about. Over in chapter 13 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, listen to what he says. This is that famous love chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I could preach like Billy Graham, if I, if I was witty and winsome like Matt Chandler, if I, if I could deliver the word like the best preachers on earth, man, guess what? If you don't love others... You're just a banging gong. You're just a lot of hot air and noise. Then he says, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secrets and plans and, and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. I would be worthless. I would be a waste of breath and time. And if I gave everything I have to the poor, if I was in incredibly generous and I even sacrificed my body, gave up my life, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. 
See, this is what I think Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a different kind of fruit. He's talking about something far more important than the disciples know and far more important than sometimes we recognize. In chapter 13, verse 35, he told them, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Well, wait a minute. I thought he just said, it's your fruit. Well, it's both. Because I think they both refer to the same thing. See, they're going to get a divine capacity to love like they've never loved before. And it's going to be a love like that between God the Father and God the Son. Holy, pure, selfless, sacrificial, unbroken, unblemished, perfect in all its ways. But he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Again, what commandment? What, what is he wanting them to do? How are they to abide in his love? Well, he, he just flat out tells them in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Now, this to me is one of those like big, deep sigh verses that you read it and you go, that's it? That's what I have to do? I, I've got to love one another? I've got to love others? Yeah. But think about it. Think how difficult this command is. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, sacrificially, selflessly, and to the bitter end, giving your life. Greater love, he says, has no other than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends, and that's what he's about to do. So he says, this is what I'm commanding you to do, love one another. But love according to my standard, how I have loved you. Greater love. This is the second time he's used this word. It's the Greek word megas. Great in weight, great in quantity, great in stature, great in every, every way imaginable. He said in verse 12, greater works than these he will do. Greater love has no, no man than this. See, God is, is expecting greatness from these men and he's going to provide the source for that greatness to appear. A supernatural otherworldly power that they don't currently have made available through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So he says, guys, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And they're sitting there thinking, man, I, I don't even know how to pull this off. I don't, I don't really even like Peter. How am I supposed to love Peter? And they're thinking in the current status in which they're living. And he's telling them, guys, you don't have it now, but you will have it. You're no longer my servants you're my friends. You mean the world to me. All that I've given you, I've given you by virtue of the Father. And, and I chose you. You didn't choose me, he tells them. And I appointed you. I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Guys, you're going to do remarkable things. Not because of you, but because of me and the Holy Spirit who will live within you. And one of the things they're going to do is they're going to love one another. See, he tells them in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. In verse 17, he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. It's all about love. Love is the greatest commandment. How do I know that? When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? He said this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The love is the greatest commandment. Love is what he's calling them to do. And I love how Peter ends that love chapter. He says three things are going to last forever. Three things in life are eternal. Faith, 
hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So what do we do with this? We're, you know, we're, we're guys. You know, we have our time some, sometimes just loving our wife and kids. But he's calling us to something far greater than that, as great as that is. He's calling us to a love like that of the Father and the Son, a love for others, a love for your enemies, a love that radically changes the lives of those around you. So if love is greater than either faith or hope, how in the world should that change the way we live our lives? These three questions I'm giving you are meant for you to think about, dwell on, meditate on, but also to discuss with friends and family members. Spend the rest of this week digging into these questions because they're so important. Secondly, according to Jesus, love is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture it. We can't self-produce it. So why is it that important for us to understand that? Why is it important for me to understand I can't fake this kind of love? And if I try, it will fail miserably and probably do more damage than good. Then finally, I want you to go back and read 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. What lessons do you take away from this powerful message from John? These are some great verses that have some incredible meaning for you and I as we try to live out our lives and do what Jesus called the disciples to do, love one another. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this day, for this message, for your word, for Jesus Christ, and for the way he modeled perfect love. May you show us that we have the ability to live like Christ lived because we have the spirit of Christ indwelling us. Father, we don't have to fake it. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to try to duplicate it in our own strength. We have power from on high. Would you show us how to live in that power so that we might bear fruit, the fruit of love, not only for those in our family, in our faith community, but even those who treat us poorly, who disagree with us, and who even attempt to persecute us. Persecute us, Father, may we be like Jesus and be able to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May we love as Jesus loved us. And I pray all this in his holy name. Amen. I'll see you guys next week.